Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Nate Taylor. Nate is Director of Software Engineering at Pluralsight and co-organizer at Connect Aha. Welcome, Nate. Hi, thanks for having me. So before we jump to the meat of things, would you give our listeners a little bit uh, deeper inf- introduction to yourself? You know, perhaps, you know, tell them how you got started in the industry. Yeah. Um, so uh, I, my, I grew up uh, a son of an engineer, son of an electrical engineer. Um, and so in the early 80s, um, we had a, a 8086 clone that he and his friend had built. And um, that was just kind of he had a policy or an approach, which was just kind of like we could pretty much do whatever we wanted to that. The case was off and off off of it. Um, he had backups of anything that was important at his office. <laughs> so like I couldn't even destroy the backups. Um, and so I, I just started playing with, I think it was GW basic. Um, I wanted to do that, um, you know, professionally. Um, I'd written a bunch of little quiz things for myself through school, um, but I got a degree in electrical engineering. I was convinced, um, you know, like, hey, go do that. Um, and then you can still do software if you want, but it's hard to go the other direction. And so I did electrical engineering for a year um, and I was like, I do not enjoy this. And um, and so I went into software development um, and just kind of bounced around, um, took a little bit of a circuitous path. But Windows development and C++ to .NET development, um, WinForms, um, I skipped all of the bad part of the web. So like no classic ASP, no web forms, any of that stuff um, and went I didn't I didn't learn the web until Hanselman and Hack were doing their what is MVC uh, blog stuff. And so I was like, Oh, this is kind of cool. Um, and then moved into, uh, moved into web development and did consultancy for like the last seven or so years where I did a lot of JavaScript. Um, and then yeah, became a, a director here at Pluralsight, uh, about 14 months ago. Wow. So, um, as a director, what, what do you work on these days? What, what are you doing? Um, I have not, well, I was going to say, I haven't written any code, which isn't entirely true. I wrote some last night. Um, for my conference. Uh, I have not written any code professionally uh, in 14 months. I don't even have an IDE on my work laptop. Um, so it's a lot of people management. It's a lot of, um, uh, we, we've acquired a cloud guru last year. So working on some of the integration there in terms of how do we get our products to work together and our internal and uh, internal tooling and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so it's, just, you know, it's that kind of stuff. It's making sure the engineering teams uh, are following whatever we've agreed to in terms of like SOX compliance or, or those kind of things. Um, and also trying to stay out of their hair so that they can write the code that they're good at writing. What's that t- transition been like for you moving into more people management in, in instead of uh, code management? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, like a light switch kind of thing. Um, so I, I was a consultant for the last uh, seven or so years before that. And one of the things I'd done there was it was a flat org. And so I'd started a coaching program um, mostly because like I was, I, I could go in and talk to the CEO and CTO at any point in time, anyone could. Um, but we had some contractors, we had some interns that just really felt like intimidated. And I was like, well, all right, I'll talk to you. And then I can take it to the CEO and CTO, um, if that helps you feel better. And so it kind of started as that. And it turned into this whole coaching program. 
um, which was more like peer coaching. So it was a very flat organization. None of them reported to me or anything like that. But it was just kind of like, how do you want to advance your career? What kind of things do you, are you interested in? Are there issues that you've got? What do you want to know from the top? Um, and so there was a lot of that kind of going on. And also during that time, I, I took on more of a, a solution architect or a sales engineer kind of role as well. So still leading projects, still writing code, but also going out with our sales folks to talk to, to new customers. So I'd started distancing myself from code a little bit anyway. Um, it was something that I made that decision. I wanted to not write code 40 hours a week. Um, I wasn't sure that I wanted to write it zero hours a week, but um, as as time went on, I was like, no, I think this is uh, the direction I want to go. And it's been um, it's been pretty rewarding uh, because uh, I was talking to another director, another person the other day, and it was just like, as you move into those roles, my my job is to be the the multiplier, right? Like those those six teams I have, each one of them is doing more than I could do by myself. Um, and probably, honestly, most of the people on those teams are doing more than I could do by myself at this point. But um, definitely them as a collection is, is, is solving those problems. So it's, it's difficult or it's dif- different, not difficult. It's different because we're dealing with people and people are different than programming languages. Um, but it's still challenging. It's still rewarding to, to kind of see those problems solved just in a different, a different layer. It's people problems, not tech, software problems. Yeah. Well, I mean, sometimes there's software problems and I don't get into in those too much, but it was like, well, how can we get this team to talk to that team? And now the software problem is suddenly solved. And I ran across your name recently on, on Pluralsight because you have some training materials there as well. Uh, one of the teams that I've been working with most recently was uh, interested in documenting a lot of the APIs that they were working on and working with using Postman. And uh, there were quality engineers and, and QA analysts and things like that, that were also uh, utilizing Postman to do their, their daily routines, to test their APIs, to test the, the, the software that's being delivered to them. What, what got you interested in Postman? Yeah, so it was probably 2015 or 16, somewhere in that time frame. We had a client, it was a, a rather large client. Um, we were doing the front end work for them. They had a, their, their team was really good on, on back end, um, they were trying to learn front end. And so our, the company I was at at the time came in and said, we can help you with that. And they had a whole bunch of different, uh, like staging and QA environments, almost kind of like, um, almost like AWS or Azure, right. Where there's different regions. So they would have like QA one and these went through different cycles. Like we, we deploy the latest code to QA one every Monday and, and on Wednesdays we do this on QA two or whatever. Um, and so they, They'd built up, this team had built up a series of Postman collections over time. Um, and the, the cool thing was, for me, um, they had environment variables. And so you could just pick QA1 and you're like, okay, I know that they just pushed this to QA1. Let me run that against QA1. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. Because before that, I had really only just used Postman for like puts and posts, you know, things you can't do uh, easily in the browser. And then I started seeing that like, oh, there's actually environment variables. And um, I think we had to have like header values that we had to set in and things like that too. And those, so those could be driven by um, environment variables and things like that. Um, and so it was kind of cool just to see, here's this collection of requests. Um, and I'll be honest, what we did at the time was we might have a checkout collection and we would just open each uh, request in that collection and run them sequentially ourselves. So we're like, okay, number one, open that, put in whatever value I needed to, click click the send or post or whatever button. Okay, number two, do that. Number three, do that. And then you could at least stand up kind of your, your fake data that you were ready to test with. Um, and so I was like, well, this, this seems like we're using it in a way that a lot of people aren't aware of. A lot of my friends used Postman just to do the basic posts and, and deletes that they couldn't do in browser. 
And so I was like, oh, I bet I bet there's other people that don't know this if I don't. Uh, and so I'd pitch the idea to, to Pluralsight about like, what if we did a course on this? Um, and uh, thankfully, they said yes. And so then that kind of uh, pushed me down the avenue of like, OK, well, what else can Postman do besides just have, you know, save your requests, which was up until that moment, the like the cool thing. It's like, oh, I don't have to remember the exact URL and the exact body anymore. I can just save it off in a file somewhere. Um, and so that's how it got me uh, to suggest that course, um, which I think was in, if I remember right, I was, I, if I remember right, I was writing it in uh, the summer of 2017. So it probably went live that fall. So speaking of the, the, the basics of Postman that a lot of developers are familiar with, um, we, we like to, to consider the more junior developers who may not be uh, familiar with it. Could you give us a quick rundown on exactly what, uh, just kind of like the most basic thing that you can do in Postman is maybe how, how you would accomplish that? Yeah. Um, I mean, probably the, the most basic thing would just be to do a, a HTTP get request, uh, right? So you give it a URL um, and you hit a button. To, I think it's a send and it goes out and it makes the request and it comes back and it gives you the data. Um, the same as, you know, if it was a browser, maybe it gives you the HTML page um, or if it's an API, it might give you the JSON data or XML, whatever the, whatever the API would send back. Um, and then from there, you can. Um, it has a nice UI that you can tweak header values, um, which is really nice uh, because I'll, I'll admit that I can never remember whether it's application content in uh, camel case, Pascal case, hyphenated. Uh, and so it has it there as a drop down and be like, oh, it's application uh, or, you know, whatever content type. And then I can pick application JSON as the type I'm sending or the type I'm receiving. So you can manipulate the headers and you can kind of see that visually. Um, and then you can you can do things that you can't easily do in the browser, like you can just make a post or a put or a delete. Um, and so it's nice when you first start working with APIs because you might not always wanna spin up a, an entire UI or you don't wanna wait for the entire UI to be spun up. It's like, let me test if my post actually works. And so you could fire up Postman, create the URL, put in whatever body or parameters you need, hit, hit the send and get your status back and jump over to your database or the server and see like, did it do the thing it said it was gonna do? Um, and so it's a really quick and dirty, well, it's not even a dirty, it's a quick and easy way of testing your, your API. Um, you know, something that maybe, maybe folks like us would have written for ourselves at some point, kind of a test harness, uh, that's turned into a full blown, uh, application now. Cool. And then, and then once you've, once you've got a few of those requests kind of built out, like you're developing an API or whatever, um, is there a way you can save those and share them with, uh, the other people that you might be working with? Yeah. So the saving is the, is the first part that I think I noticed is like, oh, I can, I can create these that I, I, I do all the time. I can create these requests. You can save them. Um, they're basically like file names. You give them a, you give it a name um, and, and then you can start organizing them as well into what they call collections. Um, so you can just save the request anyway, and then you can start putting them in collections. And so um, you might say, this is, these are the requests for my household. And these are the requests for my shopping cart. And these are the requests for my authentication. Um, and then you can have those as workspaces. So you can share requests um, on, on, on an account. Um, and so if the, all of us had one account, like we could each be writing requests and then sharing them and they'd be available to everybody, um, which has been super helpful in my career because, uh, uh, you know, you'll go over and talk to somebody like, hey, how, are you, how do you do this thing? And they're like, oh, I'll just share my collection with you. And then you can just run through and see it. Um, and they'll still walk through it, of course, right? But it's a lot easier than them telling you this. And then you go back to your desk and trying to fumble around doing it. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're, we're humans, so we mess up and we forget to tell you that there's a step three or something like that. And you're like, oh, it's not working. Uh, and so that sharing of collections and sharing of requests makes it really easy just to be able to pass that around 
Um, and it also is, it's also great because it makes sure that everyone's doing things the same way, right? And so um, not always great from a, a QA testing, right? Because sometimes you want to do things differently, but when you're actually trying to develop, you want to make sure you're doing them uh, consistently with the same headers and the same URLs and the same body types and all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, it's a, a really powerful feature of, of Postman. Yeah, to me, I, I guess when when I was uh, first encountering it, uh, I I think we obviously said like the saving of the collections is is one of the the great things. But initially, my question was sort of like I can do a lot of this stuff with Swagger, right? Uh, and you can do a lot of the discovery and running, running, um, you know, your API, uh, exercising your API fairly simply uh, with Swagger. But yeah, being able to like, so you know, it's kind of like. The question is like, what would, why do I need Postman or why do I, or should I switch to Postman and not use Swagger? They are really two different tools is kind of the way that I kind of came, came to understand it. And the, you know, Swagger, which I know we haven't really talked about until now, but Swagger really gives you that uh, discoverability and that documentation side of things and get, offers a way sort of to execute these things. Whereas like Postman seems to do a lot better job at sort of, um, collecting those the actual tests and in fact there's a thing for writing tests or creating tests would you like to talk about that yeah yeah um and so yeah i think um one of the the biggest differences for me between swagger and postman before i hop into the test is that um swagger does a really good job like you were saying of discoverability right so you can you can put that in a project and suddenly somehow that i still don't understand it knows your routes and things and you're just like here's your request and i was like those are my requests Postman's not going to do that as much. They do have a documentation feature, but it's it's really more you're going to document this collection. And so you can still expose it. You can still let people hit your API through a, you know, a man page kind of thing. But um, but yeah, so they're, they're different. They're serving different purposes. But um, Postman actually does have that testing functionality. They, they have a pre-request and a post-request test on each request. So each request would be a get, a post, put, delete, patch, whatever the other verbs are. Um, and and they're... I think it probably originally were like, let me make this API request. Let me do a get to uh, to books. And then let's make sure that every book that comes back has an ISBN, right? Like that's maybe our test. Uh, and so it would be kind of like a unit test. And we would write that in a very unit testy way. In fact, it uses um, um, JavaScript. And I think it's Mocha or a Mocha-like syntax uh, on the testing framework there. And so you can write it to like go over every single, every single uh, value that was returned and check. Does it have an ISBN? And if so... We test pass the test. If not, we fail the test. Um, and so that was kind of my first exposure to them. And then I started realizing that, like, well, I don't actually have to just test the data that came back, right? I could do all sorts of stuff. It's just a code editor, and I can start kind of um, handling that. And so I could I can write a collection, um, and then in that post result test, store my store that data off into like a global variable or a temp variable or something like that to be used at another request, right? Like, okay, I'm going to make this request. Um, so in, in my course, uh, we do that like when you create a user and when you create a household, well, those return unique IDs. And if you're going to automate this, you're going to want to hold on to that ID, right? Because it doesn't do you any good to create it. And then you're like, oh, let's just always put it on ID one because um, you want to you run through that whole process. So I'd save that off. And then in the pre-request, I actually got to the point where I started realizing like you can check preconditions too. So um, maybe I want to write a bunch of tests that um, or I want to run through the collection in a way that creates five users. And I can use that pre-request to say, how many users have I created? Oh, I've created four. Okay, now I've created five. Let me go to this next test instead of repeating this same uh, request each time. 
Uh, and so, you know, once I started looking at um, the maybe and maybe I'm abusing the test section, I don't know. But once I started looking at it as just kind of a code editor, I was like, oh, this becomes a lot more powerful, um, not just in testing the actual request, but in test in testing the flow and ensuring that I'm getting data set up in a way that makes sense. What about for the quality analyst or the, the quality engineers using Postman? I, I'm I've run across some uh, like really mature testing teams that have put together very impressive almost workflows for their test suites uh like you said gener- like creating a user using that id through through end to end of the entire life cycle of the application what what what's been your understanding or your experience with those in the testing field using something like postman yeah, I guess I guess first I have to kind of like confess uh, a shortcoming of mine, and that's when I released the course. I wasn't thinking about quality folks at all. So I'm I'm a developer. I'd been working with other developers, um, even in that even in that big project. Like the QA people were another team that wasn't part of our company, and it happened further down the road, and all this kind of stuff. And so um, I was just like, well, this is a tool that that developers use. Uh, and so I made some assumptions early on in the course of how you set stuff up and the tools you were using. Um, that I, I just got inundated with uh, at the beginning in terms of comments of like, well, how do I do this and how do I do that? And it took me a little while to realize that the reason that the people didn't know that was because they were doing quality assurance and quality engineering and not software development. And so they had a different suite of tools. Um, and so once I realized that it was a learning moment, one, on how to how to be better at teaching things um, and two, uh, it helped me kind of see um, that there there is that, uh, like you said, a mature testing model. Um, that will let you walk through that. And so you can build up all sorts of scenarios. Um, you could build up um, all of your kind of test paths, right? So you could build up the, the expected execution. We're going to create a user. They're going to change their password. Uh, they're going to log in with a new password, and that's going to work. And then we could, you know, hey, we're going to create a password, uh, a user. They're going to try to log in five times. It's going to fail and lock them out. Then they're going to try to change their password, and we shouldn't let them. Like, let's make sure that that flow works. And those could be two separate collections. Um, that they could then control and they could say, you know, build up almost a collection of collections, right? And we're just going to kick these off at the end of a sprint or at the end of every day and just kind of make sure that our our API isn't regressing. Um, and when we can start building those things up and the more that you have those automated tests, um, the more that you know, like, okay, the, this part of the API is working, which is great. Um, we know that you can, you're locked out, you can't change your password, or we know that this flow works for the user all the way through um, and they can update, delete, update, delete, you know, the same thing five times from their shopping cart and it's not going to break. Um, and so it really gives them that power of like, you can, you can, you can actually test the back end of the system um, and, and do it in a, a pretty reliable way. Um, there's, there's better UI testing tools now than, you know, when I looked at them probably five or 10 years ago. Uh, but if you can just make a, a API call um, to test that that part's working, um, that's going to be less brittle than a than a UI test, right? So they can start to verify, like, okay, the application logic works. There's still this bug. That means it's probably on the front end. Let's let's figure that out. Um, because for the most part, we don't change APIs that often. Um, you know, we move buttons around, we give them new labels and all sorts of new CSS selectors all the time, which can break the the UI test. But the API test, you know, it's uh, we we get into holy wars over whether we're going to rename some route or not, right? And so those don't change as much. And so I think that gives them a, an option as well to to increase their confidence that the the system's working as they would expect. And there's also the use of like Newman, which is a thing, right? Uh, I've seen the use of of Newman in uh, pipelines and test automation that way, exercising 
our APIs uh, nightly, daily, et cetera. Yeah, I I, I learned uh, about Newman when I started working on that course. Like I said, I started with just kind of like, oh, here's collections. Let me teach people about collections. And then I was like, oh, it does it does this too. That's pretty neat. Um, and uh, I'm a big, I'm a huge uh, proponent of TDD. Um, that's usually my uh, notoriety at companies when I was a developer. It was like, oh, Nate's the TDD guy. And so when I saw that there was a test runner for Postman scripts that you could throw in as a as an npm as an as a as a, as a separate runner, right, for your CI/CD. Um, that was pretty amazing because now not only can you run your unit tests, can you run your integration tests, but depending on the build, depending on what you want to do on the pipeline, you can actually run your API tests as well. Um, which you know it, that that can be amazing if you're going to run those on a on every check-in domain or something like that, so that um, you know that there's no breaking changes to the API, um, and and you can go through and and like I said, you're not always just hitting that same user because they're just running the collections, and so whatever the the way you script those. Um, you know, you can run them. If it fails, it'll give a um, like a CI/CD error. Uh, so it tells the the build what, whatever you're using. It gives that kind of standard, like oh, we failed with an error, and so it knows the build's broken, um, which gives teams a lot of power uh, or power over their quality, I should say, or control. Maybe not power, control over their quality uh, to ensure that they're not breaking changes on on the API as they're making commits. Yeah. So one of the things that we um sort of sort of talked a little bit about before the um the show got started was uh the idea of a mock server with postman is is that a mock server like mocking out um an external dependency maybe that your stuff is going to call or or how is that used yeah i suppose you could use it that way the way i've always looked at it <clears throat> as um Pretty much any time I've been on one team in which ha is in charge of both the API and the the front end, you know, especially as we look at like Angular and React type front ends, they're never in sync. Um, I mean, end of sprint one, they're out already out of sync, um, and it's hard. I mean, it's a really hard thing to keep them in sync. And so sometimes the API team's working ahead, sometimes the UI team's working ahead, sometimes it's on different features. And so what the mock server will let you do is within Postman, you could say, when I make this request, when I make a post to users. And I put in um, certain data, or I put it, I pass in a certain header. I want you to send me a, res, uh, a success back, or I want you to send me um, an error back. Um, and in fact, if I pass you this, you know, header as uh, HTTP status code, I want you to give me that as the error back kind of thing. Um, then it allows the front end to to go ahead and wire up everything, right? And they can make that uh, like a, a config variable, so they're like, here's what our URL is, and it's the Postman mock server. Uh, and so then they can actually go in and test, like, what, is our, what does our app do when we get a 500 back? What does our app do when we get a 403, a 404? Um, and sometimes those are, even if you have the API wired up, that can be a pain, right? I've been on both sides of that. Um, I've been both the UI engineer and the backend engineer that someone wants, a, hey, can you make sure you return a, a 400 with this? And you're like, oh, here's what you're going to have to do. Like, here's the payload you're going to have to send me. Um, and all they want to do is just like test their error message, right? Uh, and so that mock server can do that for them. And it can... It can pretty much do whatever you want, whatever you tell it to do. Um, and you can have it set up um, different profiles. I can't remember what the right word is, but different profiles. Of like, if I send you this, return 200. If I send you this, return 400. If I send you this and this, return 403. Um, and so that way you can really get some control there while the, you know, maybe the API is being built um, or uh, just as an easier way to test. So um, kind of like... Uh, 
uh, kind of like mocks on unit testing, right? You can have that, like, oh, I don't really want to have to set this thing up to throw an exception, but I can figure out how to tell it to throw an exception um, so that I, I, I can test that exception handling. Okay, so probably not without some some significant effort, but you could put in all the scenarios that your, let's say, front-end application needs to fulfill whether whether they're failure scenarios or success scenarios and build them into this mock server and then run the the front end against the mock server and step through every case that you need to verify works um against your your UI which is normally kind of difficult to set up all those all those scenarios with yeah and and I I don't think you would yeah yes is the short answer uh, the longer answer is I don't I think you would probably do that once or twice right because most of the time the UI is going to have a pretty standard error handling thing right this is how we handle this type of error um and so it's not something you'd have to set up for every single request um but yeah I think you could do that um and and like you said it's not without some effort um but sometimes that's that's worth it if you really want to go that extra mile of making sure that this is uh this is doing the thing that we think it's going to do it's going to fail the way we think it is. Um, or, you know, in some cases, I've hard-coded data in, a, in an Angular app, uh, and it never made the HTTP request uh, because I was just mocking that out. And then we went live, and we're like, why is everybody's data the exact same? And you're like, oh, because Nate hard-coded it in a JavaScript file, and it never made the REST request, right? And so this would help prevent that as well. I mean, you'd still have to tweak the URL so it's not hitting the mock server, um, but it does get you away from uh, everyone has the exact same data because it's hard-coded somewhere in JavaScript. Yeah, I've got some applications that I work with where the only way to see a particular part of the UI, and these are legacy apps, right? So they're like, as it sits right now, not unit testable. Like it's just, they're not, they don't support it. Um, so, but, but, and, and, you know, getting the database configured to return the correct values to get you into just that right uh, UI state is difficult, but setting up a mock server and, you know, it seems like it might be a, a valuable exercise because it can return just the right values to get to just that right state where we could we could validate changes to that piece of the UI whenever we need to. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you just nailed it. Right? A lot of times those legacy systems or even not so legacy systems, the getting the getting the actual server set up just right to return that result can be painful to the point that. Let's be honest, a lot of us just stop at that point. You're like, well, this is going to be a rare case. I'm sure it works fine. Uh, and we just don't pursue it. Yeah, it's, it's probably good. What about everybody's favorite topic of documentation? I mean, it's, it's usually the thing that we forget about or it's the thing that we delay. It's the thing we never get around to. It's the thing that we ignore and quickly get stale. What, what does Postman provide or, or how can Postman help us uh, develop, maintain, uh, and, and share our documentation. Yeah. And so this is where there is a little bit of an overlap with Swagger. Um, I mean, the great thing Swagger does is it self-discovers those APIs, right? Um, the, the, the double-edged sword is that, um, let's just throw out a number and say 98% of us stop at that point and never write any of the documentation <laughs> on Swagger, right? Um, Postman doesn't quite go, like it doesn't hold, it doesn't do that much for you in terms of like, it doesn't auto discover the API. Um, but you can, you can create documentation, especially for collections. Um, and so, um, it kind of guides you through that. You can talk about what headers it'll show you, like, here's the headers you need to send. Here's the, um, you know, body style or body template we'll say. Um, and so it, it then does also kind of have that free form. So you can 
type in uh, Markdown and say, you know, the user ID is the ID of the user you want to delete, not your user ID or whatever, you know, something along those lines. Um, and then it actually, um, the nice thing that Postman ha- does, and, and maybe Swagger does this too, I'm not sure. Um, it actually has, um, it can generate the code snippets for you. So if you're using like um, uh, uh, an Ajax call in JavaScript or REST Sharp and C Sharp, you can actually pick that from a dropdown. It'll be like, here's the REST Sharp code that you need to do to execute this uh, request. And you can copy it, you can put, paste it right into your code, probably tweak a couple of things for variables, right? Um, but otherwise, it's like, here, if you want to do this, this is what you do. Um, and so that's been um, useful as well, uh, just to kind of be able to say like, oh, well, I'm not using C Sharp, I'm using, or JavaScript, maybe I'm using PHP. And so there's a drop down there. Um, so it does give you some of that benefit of like how to make those calls. Um, and and it is hosted publicly. Um, I think it depends on the licensing of what package you have with Postman of whether you get to control the the URL or not, but you can at least post those up there and, and say, here's the, here's the documentation for my API uh, and, and keep it up to date for people that way. Yeah, that was going to be my next question was like, so I get that that documentation is not like something that's spit out for you. It's something that gets, gets hosted and then you don't, you, there's perhaps some like different options for that hosting. Cause I, I could imagine that like that probably matters to some people. Yeah, I'm sure it does. I haven't played with it too much. I mean, I, it seemed like the the um, I don't, I'm not trying to speak for the Postman creators. It seemed like the the mindset there was, you know, a public facing API. You could go to to natesapi.com and it would be like, oh, this is how I use Nate's API. Okay, cool. You know, a Spotify or something like that. Um, and I don't know how it works uh, internally. Uh, maybe maybe you can still have it, and it's just behind your company's account or something like that, right? And so you have to log in. Um, so yeah, it's not, it's not something, it's not a build step or anything like that on your, on your development project that has to be created. It's just kind of exists out there. That's excellent. Uh, speaking of like company accounts, uh, you, you mentioned, um, you know, being able to like share collections with, with a team. So what, what are the, some of the features that Postman is offering as far as allowing developers to share this as a team tool? Yeah, so there's there's a certain amount of sharing at the free level, um, but it, it's kind of that uh, I guess freemium model. Um, and so as you as you sign up for different levels, you get additional things. So um, some of that is uh, I think the number of mock server calls goes up. Um, you know, so if it was just you and me or just me, maybe I get a hundred mock servers a day or something like that. And then as time you know as you add more people, that that's obviously not going to be sufficient. So they'll give you more. Um, and so it's those kind of things like mock servers. Um, uh, I, I, probably some amount of uh, documentation. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it, it allows you to um, share collections um, and be able to run those collections um, and you have different uh, user access control. So, you know, I could share my collection with you and I could say, well, you can run it, but you can't edit it because this is my collection or I don't want you to delete it um, uh, because that would be bad, right? And so I would just set that to be like a viewer type permission or an admin type permission. And so it gives you some of that control as well. Um, so you can kind of have a postman admin, I guess, uh, and let them set up some of that, um, which I'm sure everyone that's listening, I'm sure their company wants uh, yet another uh, admin <laughs> type role uh, of someone that has to manage something. But uh, yeah, I mean, at the same time, they probably don't want to spend the money on uh, someone accidentally deleting an entire collection. And then the team has to spend two weeks rebuilding it uh, because that's probably a little bit more expensive of an option. Yeah, and I know there's the ability to like backup collections as well. I know that some teams advocate even backing up their collections in like their their code repositories in GitHub or, or something similar. Do you, yeah, do you have any recommendations or any suggestions on on 
on practices like that? I don't know if I have any like recommendations or not. I, I use that um, feature because I have, a, I have a GitHub repo for the Postman course collections um, because uh, what I did in the course on Pluralsight was, um, you know, we walked through the basics and then I showed collections and then we got into the testing part. And um, I, so I was, a lot of the testing is like, you, you're probably pausing the screen and, and typing what I typed if you're following along. Um, and um, that became like, well, I know I typed it right. And, you, and you're like, oh, okay, I don't know if you did or not, right? But like this, this failed. And so being able to export the collection, which includes everything, like the tests and all that into a GitHub repo. And then I can just be like, here's the repo. Like if you're stuck on, module three, go pull that repo and pull it in and see like maybe there was a difference. And, and if you pull it in, if, if you pull mine in and it runs fine, then there's some, there's some configuration or coding issue with yours. If mine has the same error as well, then like something's changed, right? And like, let's look into that. Um, and so that's been helpful. Um, and it's, it's like you said, it's also a backup um, because uh, yeah, that, those things kind of have a... Um, it's a different mindset. So you're not in Visual Studio Code. You're not in whatever your IDE is. So you're not thinking about Git changes. So you're just kind of in there like messing with stuff like, oh, let me try this. Did that work? Let me try this. And then suddenly uh, your collection looks completely different than what it did 10 minutes ago and you can't remember how to get back there. So um, yeah, I, I have used those as a backup as well, but it's it's been more primarily to, to share a collection of the, the scripts and everything um, from someone watching my my courses. So what else? Have we missed anything? Are there things that you want our listeners to be sure to know about or, or research about using Postman? Um, the one the one thing that I don't think we talked about that I thought was really cool was, um, I mean, it's got a proxy built in. Um, and there's other proxies, right? Charles Proxy is a popular one. Um, but I think in the, in the course I show, I don't show the whole thing, but I set it up as a proxy. Um, and then I connect my phone to that proxy or connect my phone and put the proxy of my, let me say this right. I set up the proxy and then on my phone, I put my laptop IP as my proxy on my phone. And then I can go browse an app or, you know, I can run Twitter or whatever. And uh, Postman is just collecting all these requests, um, which is a really powerful tool, especially in the case of a mobile app where you're like, I'm not sure what API request it's making. I don't know where it's failing. Or I don't know what it's doing, right? And then you can go just like, okay, I'm done. Stop the proxy. And you have this entire collection of, of requests that you've made. It doesn't have to be your mobile phone, right? It could be your laptop or whatever else as well. It could be someone else's laptop. Um, but it does let you kind of gather that information um, to see here's what the requests are. And um, you know, now it's not someone forgetting uh, a certain request that they forgot to tell you about. It's here's what they actually are. Uh, and you can kind of see um, what that data is. It's also really helpful because like you get the whole header, you get everything. And so you can kind of see like, oh, is this, is this, um, an important piece of data or not. And so I use that on a different client once. Um, there was, uh, they, they had an app and they bought another app and they were, um, I don't remember what their first one was in. Their second one was in .NET. And so that's why I was there because I was the .NET expert. And they're like, we need to get this authentication to then like route to this other um, app and kind of vice versa, no matter where, no matter where someone hits. And so I was able to use Postman to like, gather some of those requests and be like, oh, you're sending this. And I didn't, I didn't have that in my header. And so no wonder it was constantly getting rejected. Right. Um, and even, even just capturing cookies and things like that. And, um, you know, it allowed us to do that. Um, and then the other cool thing, uh, so that's one cool thing. The other cool thing is Postman does a really good job 
um, with authentication. And that's a huge pain if you've done APIs, uh, right? If you do the basic, like the base 64, like that's really simple, right? Where you just have do the auth header, the um, uh, what's it called? The bearer token. And you just like combine a passphrase and base 64. That's all easy. But Postman will let you like pick different authentication schemes and then type in a username password. And it does all the magic behind the scenes for you. Um, which is great uh, so that if, you know, if you know you have a username password for this version of the API or that version, um, and you can store all those in environment variables too. So you can have my authentication for staging and my, you know, authentication for dev and test and prod um, and all those kind of things. And you can kind of have them as environment variables. And so that was a, a huge help for me as well, because um, before I started using Postman messing with APIs, uh, I would say half of my time was spent fighting with authentication um, every single time. It was just like, how does this one work again? I can't remember. Uh, and so that's been that's been a huge help for me as well. Yeah, the uh, proxying that you mentioned uh, it's not so not a topic of this podcast, but our previous one, security, uh, is a huge huge benefit if you're trying to troubleshoot some security things. Uh, you effectively create a man in the middle, um, and then you can see exactly <laughs> how people uh, uh, can attack your application. So. What uh, resources might you call uh, out or point our listeners to to um, for 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 people who like want to get started with Postman and want to sort of learn and understand? We've uh, we've called out your 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 plural site several times, so feel free to plug that one yet what yet once again. But uh, that and other others, what would you lead push them to? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, the the course on plural sites called Postman Fundamentals or fundamentals of Postman. Um, I always mix the two up in my head. Um, I think it's Postman fundamentals. Um, uh, if you don't have a subscription, they do uh, trials, 10-day uh, trials and things like that. Um, and uh, follow them on on Twitter and LinkedIn at Pluralsight and whatnot because they will do free weekends and free weeks and um, things like that. So um, you can you can get some free courses. And they also have free courses. Like this weekend or this week, here's what our five free courses are. A little bit off a topic, I guess a little bit of, of promotion there for Pluralsight, but the, the course is there. Um, and then the other thing that's really helpful, um, going back to uh, something John mentioned earlier, Pluralsight does a, or Pluralsight, Postman does a really good job of documenting their tool. Um, and so if you go to the Postman docs, there's a lot of information there. Um, in fact, there were times in the course where I was like, I'm like 95% sure this is how I'm, I should do it. And I would like go research for a couple nights, reading their docs and be like, yeah, that's how you're supposed to do it. Um, and so... Um, that also, if, if you don't have a Pluralsight subscription and, um, and you are more, more fond of, uh, you know, reading than, than watching a video, like, um, there's plenty of things in my course that were, um, uh, brought out from the documentation. You know, it's not an exact copy or anything like that. It's like, oh, that's how that works. Okay. Now let me work that into this course. Um, those have been the two biggest things for me, uh, for helping, uh, understand it. And then, um, the same thing for everything for me is, uh, you know, it's a free tool. So download it and play with it. And, and that's how I always learn as well. So, um, those would be the biggest, uh, resources I think for, for trying to learn more about Postman. Cool. Thank you. Um, what has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their own careers? Um, yeah, I, I guess a couple of thoughts. Um, uh, well, I, I should start talking because the more I think about it, the more thoughts I'll have. But um, so so one is I think there's a temptation now um, to uh, to get as broad as possible, um, you know. And so I, I saw um, as a hiring manager, I was looking at on LinkedIn today, um, trying to find people to fill some open roles. And I saw someone um, that had just completed a, a boot camp on, I think, React or something like that. And they were saying like, oh, I'm also learning uh, neural networks and machine learning and artificial intelligence and DevOps and data science. And I was just like, 
there's just no way, right? Like, I mean, sure, you can learn all of that stuff, but to be employable and to be growing in your career, like that's going to be really hard to do all at once. Do it all for sure. Like find the things that are interesting for you. And I'm not by any stretch of the imagination saying you have to be the React expert that can explain hooks forward and backwards or anything like that. But but also realize that like, you have, yeah, you're not. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I should have said something about C sharp, right? Unless you're Anders, <laughs> uh, you're probably not explaining C sharp correctly um, uh, at some point. Um, but uh, but there's just a lot to take on, right? And so get good at something first. And I don't mean like a ten out of ten, but be like a four out of ten or a six out of ten uh, on something. And then you can start to bring in these other things because um, because it's exciting. I get it. Like there's a lot of cool stuff in tech. Um, but if if you're if you're a, a centimeter deep across all of it, it it's going to be hard to grow your career, to be quite honest. Um, and it can be frustrating for you because you're gonna be like, but I know a little bit about data science. Why can't I get that job? Um, and you're like, yeah, but you also know a little bit about these 17 other things and none of them are exactly what they want, right? And so it seems counterintuitive because you're like, well, if I have more stuff then I'm open to more, um, but in my experience, that hasn't been the case um, because people want you to be at least proficient in one thing and maybe um, knowledgeable about some other stuff. Um, so that's one. Uh, and like I said, it's, I'm, I don't want to come across sounding like a Debbie Downer on here or anything like that. Like I have a very eclectic sense of um, interest in learning. And so I am not saying stay away from that stuff. I'm just saying focus on one for a while and then grow uh, on, into other ones. And so what I used to tell people is if you want to learn a new language, pick a really boring domain that you already know, like pick a to-do list or pick a, uh, pick a, a library application, like managing books or movies or something like that. Something where the domain is kind of well understood and then learn your new language in that. Because if you're going to like, hey, I'm going to build this brand new app about a thing I don't understand in a language I don't yet understand, it's going to be really frustrating. You're going to be really slowed down um, and you're not going to understand. Is it because I don't understand the domain or is it because this language does something weird? Um, and so it's just it's just about focus. And then the last thing I would say, too, for uh, for career general career advice is. Um, is let them tell you no, uh, which is a phrase that my wife told me once uh, as I was looking at uh, a potential job. Um, I, I was on the market. There was a startup in town. I read their job posting. I was like, oh, this sounds like a cool place I'd want to go work at. But their job description makes it sound like they're looking for maybe like a brand new college graduate. And I had 10 or so years of experience at this time. And, and so I was like, I don't know if I should apply. And my wife said, let them tell you no. And I was like, yeah, why don't I let them tell me no? So I applied. I got the job. Um, and it just kind of reinforced that, right? Of like, it doesn't do me any good to, to self-select out of something. Um, that doesn't mean, you know, it could have worked out differently. They could have told me no, and I would have moved on. Um, but too often, I think we, we self-select out of it, right? And be like, well, I'm not a 10 out of 10 on C-sharp, so I shouldn't apply for the senior C-sharp position. Like, no, that's probably not true. Um, or maybe I don't hit all 17 bullets on the job description, uh, so I shouldn't apply. Well, that's definitely not the case because... I don't know of a single job description that everything is, is truly required, right? Like we're, we're, <laughs> we're putting it out there just to try and like find someone that knows maybe four of the 17 things and then we can go from there. Um, so yeah, that, that'd be my general career advice or general life advice, I guess. Let them tell you no. Yeah. That's the, that's the, you miss every shot you don't take, right? My, my main takeaway is that if we're shooting for four out of 10, I might have a chance. So <laughs> <laughs> almost there, almost, almost, almost. I, I, I would say probably monthly. I've told my engineers uh, that report to me that I'm not sure that I would be qualified to work for them or work with them <laughs> rather. Uh, so I can totally uh, empathize with you there. So where can our listeners go to follow you and keep up with what you're working on? Yeah, um, I'm on LinkedIn. I've been posting more there uh lately under just nathan taylor um 
looks about like this face as my headshot. Um, and there's a there's like a grass farm background uh, as well. So if you, if that's the Nate Taylor you find, um, that's going to be more like professional career kind of stuff. Um, my Twitter account is T A Y L O N R, um, and people ask from time to time, is that a typo? And it's not. It's when your name's Nate Taylor and you go uh, try to find a unique uh, Twitter handle. <laughs> um, that's really hard. So that I don't know if this is still the case. That was Caterpillar's Active Directory naming structure. The first five letters of your last name, your first initial, your middle initial. And it just so happens my middle initial is the same as the sixth letter of my last name. Uh, and so it just gets messy. But that's if you go to my Twitter, um, I post a lot on there. Um, Twitter is Twitter. My Twitter account exists to entertain me. So I post things like uh, <laughs> uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and Chiefs football and theology and politics and stupid developer stuff and whatever, <laughs> whatever I find amusing. Um, and so I recognize that if, if you're coming to like, what are the best development tips? Like that's not the Twitter handle for you. Um, <laughs> follow Corey house. Like that's a pretty good one to follow if you're looking for developer tips. Um, but yeah, those would probably be the two best ways to, to reach out to me. And I, I welcome it. Right. So if you, if you connect on LinkedIn or you connect on Twitter, send me a message, let me know. Um, I'd love to have a conversation as well. We, we didn't, we didn't talk about connect. Aha. No, that's all right. It's uh yeah, we're, Technically year three, uh, so 2019, we did it in person. Um, uh, my co-organizer was a UX engineer that we worked at the same company together. We were driving back from KCDC. Uh, we both spoke and we we're like, we, we should put a conference on in Omaha. Uh, and so we put one on in 2019. Um, and then 2020, we were, um, we canceled early March. It was like March 8th. And our conference was like March 28th or, or March 16th or something like that. And we had to cancel because the next day we had to put our swag order in and we're like, we, we just don't know. So we canceled and uh, we got, a, we got a few people going, I understand, but do you really have to, is it really that big of a deal? And like the next day or the day after NBA and MLB both postponed their seasons. And we were like, yeah, like we made the right decision. Um, and then we tried last year, we did a virtual one and that sucked. We didn't, we didn't enjoy it. I mean, it was fine, but it was, wasn't what we were after for our conference. Um, so we're doing it in July of this year um, and we're making some, we're doing an MVP conference, basically. Like we're stripping out as much as we can and just like how flexible can we be um, because COVID is not gone and who knows how it's going to change between now and July. And if we need to make changes, we need to make changes. So um, we're trying that again, but it's, it's really just a conference for software professionals. So not just developers, but like everyone that's on a software team, every role that's on a software team. And we, we take that to heart. So we have, um, we have a developer, DevOps, QA, um, UX, those are our, and a, a, a manager, a software manager. Like those are five of the people we've got speaking this year so far. Um, but yeah, just trying to get, get people together and talking and understanding things from different perspectives. Um, so maybe a little bit different than a, you know, no fluff, just stuff, which is a lot of Java or, you know, just a, like, it's not a, it's not a Nebraska JS conference where it's just JavaScript. Um, so yeah. So are uh, tickets already on sale or, or when, or do you know when? Yeah, they, they are. Um, yeah. And you can, if you put, if you put stuff in liner notes or whatever you could do, connect is the site and there's a button there for tickets. Um, so they're on sale and yeah, we're all that fun stuff. Well, Nate, thank you so much for taking the time to join us this evening. This has been really just a, a whole lot of fun. So thanks again. Yeah. Thanks for having me. That was Nate Taylor. Nate is a director of software engineering at Pluralsight and co-organizer at Connect Aha. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more 
at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us live each week on Twitch. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at SixFigureDev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. <laughs>